Today we are continuing our series through the book of Galatians. Uh, So this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul about 48 AD to to Christians living in what is now modern-day Turkey. And so you you may have been noticing a, a pattern over the last six weeks that we've been moving through chapter one and and chapter two is Paul has been talking a lot about something called the gospel. Um, And and literally, gospel means good news. It's the announcement of what God has done. And so you'll remember all the way back in in chapter one, Paul talked about how the, the Galatian Christians were turning away from the gospel to counterfeit gospels. And then Moving on in chapter 1, he talked about how the gospel wasn't received from any man, but actually he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he uh, really defended that point by outlining his spiritual biography from his conversion. And then in chapter 2, Paul talked about how a bunch of the leaders in the early church, the apostles, met in Jerusalem and that they agreed on the gospel, and they agreed not only on the gospel, but implications of the gospel, and they desired to, to live out what the gospel means in their, in their daily life, and they didn't force uh, Titus uh, to conform to ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And then finally, last week, we saw Paul talking about the truth of the gospel, where the apostle Peter came to Antioch, this multicultural, multi-ethnic church, and was he was living hypocritically. He was separating himself from people who weren't of Jewish heritage. And so Paul calls him out and says, this behavior is not all right. This is out of step with the truth of the gospel. And so, you know, as we've been talking about the gospel, you know, each sermon I've basically explained this is what the gospel is. But you'll notice that Paul hasn't really actually unpacked what the gospel is. I mean, if you were just reading the book of Galatians, you had never heard of the gospel. By the time you get to the end of chapter 1, you would, you would start to have an idea of, okay, I think I'm getting hints at the nature of the gospel, but it hasn't been clearly defined. And that's really because chapters 1 and 2 are Paul saying the gospel has authority. And then now moving into chapters 2 and 3, he's saying this is what the gospel is. I'm going to unpack it. I'm going to defend it. I'm going to show exactly what it is. And our passage today is this hinge from the gospel as authority to this is actually what the gospel is. And a lot of scholars think that this, this passage that we'll read in a moment is the, the thesis statement actually for the entire book of Galatians. So if you can understand these verses, you'll understand what Galatians is about. But then, of course, by extension, if you understand this, you'll not only understand Galatians, but you'll actually understand what Christianity itself is about, that this passage shows the very heart, the very center, the very fulcrum of our faith. So if you, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, and this is on page 973 on the, the Pew Bible that's uh, under your seat. Uh, so again, uh, Galatians chapter 2. 2, beginning in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Remember, he's talking to Peter, and he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I die to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your, your spirit would be guiding our understanding. I, I ask, Lord, that I wouldn't import anything into this text that's, that's not of you, Lord, but I pray I could be faithful to what you have said. And so I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we were, we were talking about this passage being the very heart of Christianity but I think if you were to go out and just talk to people in the, in the world, in the, in the country, your average American, I think, has an idea of what Christianity is all about. But people have, have different answers, though, of what they, they think it's about. That there are some people who say, well, Christianity is really about who your parents were. So they, they say, well, you're, you were born Catholic, so you're a Catholic. You're born Protestant you're a Protestant. You're born in a Presbyterian family. You're a Presbyterian. And, and so it's, it's just basically who you are. So you inherit it. But then other people think about Christianity not as something that is just based on who your parents are, but is really based on what you do. So, so they would say that Christianity is about it's following the Ten Commandments or certain ceremonies, or Christianity is about being baptized or about receiving consecrated bread and wine from a priest, or that Christianity, in a negative sense, you could, they might say it's about restricting freedom or imposing a certain political agenda on other people. So what then is Christianity about? Well, we see the answer here in these verses that you heard read a moment ago. And, and really, we see that Christianity is about justification by faith alone, Christianity is about union with Christ alone, and Christianity is about righteousness by grace alone. And so Christianity, it's about faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. So let's just walk through those things uh, individually from our text here. So first, Christianity is about justification by faith alone. Uh, Now, Martin Luther called justification by, by faith alone the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Uh, and throughout church history, people have seen that, that this doctrine is, is really where the, the essence of Christianity is, is tied up. That if we, if we get it wrong on justification, we actually lose all of what Christianity is. And, and that's even what Paul's been saying, is the, is the Galatians are losing justification. And he's saying you know, they're not just finding another alternative to Christianity, but they've actually lost Christianity itself. So what actually then is justification? I mean, you might think of your kid trying to, to justify 
behavior. We use that language, justifying yourself in, in the court of law. And it actually has a similar meaning in the Bible where justification is really about our right standing before God. How are we going to be accepted and counted righteous in the sight of a holy God? And so if you were to put it in question form, justification is asking this question, how can I be accepted as righteous before the tribunal of God? So it's a, it's a legal question. It's really that, that image that you might have of you die, you go to heaven, you appear before God, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? And then you have to give a, a, a reason. Hey, this is why you should let me into heaven. And really, whatever you say, that would basically be what your doctrine of justification by faith is, or rather, just your doctrine of justification. Now, sometimes when we think about, all right, this is, this is doctrine, justification by faith alone, is this something that actually matters? Is this something that's relevant? Or is this just kind of abstract, heady stuff that only certain people who maybe go to seminary should care about? And it actually is an extremely relevant, important thing for each and every one of us, because I think history has proved thus far that everyone dies eventually. I was even, I, I saw that now that the oldest person in the world was born in the 20th century. Uh, so, there, you know, no one is alive who lived bef before the 20th century. You might say, okay, I knew that's not that, that surprising. But if you think about just the countless number of people who have died throughout human history, it's, it's not something that we like to, to think about. But in reality, every single one of us is going to die. And the Bible is very clear that we will appear before God to give an account. And so this question of how can I stand before a righteous and holy God is maybe not relevant in this exact moment in your life, but there will come a time when it will be the most relevant question that you'll ever face. And so what is the answer that Paul gives here in the book of Galatians? Well, the, the first thing that he shows us is what justification is not based on, that it's not based on some kind of religious pedigree, and it's not based on our works. Look at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And so, as we said, Paul here, he, he's rebuking Peter for his hypocrisy. He's reminding him of the of the gospel, not trying to tear him down, but trying to encourage him with what he already believes. And so Paul here is basically saying, Peter, we, we are Jews by birth, that, that we were raised in a religious nation, we were raised in religious families, uh, our people have a special covenant relationship with God, our people receive the, the law from God on Mount Sinai, uh, our people receive the promise of the Messiah. And then when God himself decided to, to come and take on a human nature, to be born to redeem humanity, he was born as a Jew. And so, so they could say, yeah, we are very special. That, and, and I can almost sense a little bit of sarcasm in these says that we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So you know, yeah, we can on one sense say we're not like those other people, but yet we know that no one is going to be justified by their religious pedigree. And the reason for that is because everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. And this is exactly the same point that Paul makes in the book of Romans. 
people a lot of times will pair Galatians and Romans because really the main theme of both is justification by faith. And in Romans, Paul says all, that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And then he also says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is then why our, where we come from religiously is not going to, to make a difference when we appear before God. And God isn't going to look and say, oh, good, I'm glad that you are descended from Abraham. I'm going to accept you as righteous. Or he's not going to say, oh, good, you were, you were raised in a, a religious home, or uh, you're, you're Catholic, or you're Protestant, or you're Presbyterian, or you're Baptist, or you're non-denominational, or Lutheran, or Greek Orthodox, or Jewish, or Hindu, or Muslim, or agnostic, that, that what group, broadly speaking, we belong to, that's not going to be the basis of our acceptance before God. And that the only thing, according to the Bible, that is ultimately going to matter when we appear before God is our relationship to Jesus Christ. Our, our religious pedigree won't matter. But then also, Paul goes on to show that not only the religious pedigree won't matter, but that also even our good works that we might claim. So, so look at verse 16. So Paul's saying, you know, Peter, we come from this great religious background, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you look at that, that phrase, works of the law, um, there has been so much debate among people throughout history of what Paul means by works of the law. And it makes a big difference for how we understand what he's saying here. And as we, as we think about that, it's helpful to remember that in the Old Testament, when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave three different kinds of, of law that he gave um, ceremonial law. So he laid out circumcision, animal sacrifice. He laid out that they were to abstain from certain foods. And all of those things were meant then to, to point forward ultimately to the coming of Christ. And that now that Christ has come, those things no longer apply because they were just signposts pointing forward. But then also God gave uh, ceremonial laws, or sorry, gave um, civil laws. So remember that in the Old Testament, it was a nation state of Israel. So there were also laws that God gave that took these moral laws and then applied. How is this going to be worked out in a nation state, in a theocracy? And so there would be punishment. If you commit this crime, you'll have this punishment. And it's interesting to read those things. But again, we don't live in a theocracy. We don't live in a nation state today. But then also, God gave moral law on Mount Sinai. And really that, that moral law is what we find summarized in the Ten Commandments. And I'm sure you, you know the Ten Commandments, stuff like not murdering, not killing, not committing adultery, not coveting. And those things were, were wrong at the time of Moses, and they're wrong today, that, that the moral law of God is something that applies in every time, in every place, um, and, and the reason for that is it's actually rooted in the very character and nature of God. So there's this universality to the, to the moral law. And so when we, when we come to Galatians here and he says, by works of the law, no one will be justified, what is, he, what is he talking about? Is he saying, is it just, we won't be justified by ceremonies, but maybe by doing good deeds? Or is he saying, we, we, we might be justified by having the right government, but not by something else? What is he talking about? Well, really... 
it, it's best to see, and we'll see this throughout the book of Galatians, that he's talking about all three. That he's saying that, that nothing that we do, none of our ceremonies, not our government policies, not even our best moral performance is going to be able to be the basis of our acceptance before God. That it's, our acceptance isn't going to be based on the fact that we go to church, or we read our Bible, or that we've been baptized, or that we wear certain clothes or that we abstain from certain foods, or it's not going to be based on our politics. Or even we might want to say, well, you know, I've never killed anybody. I've never done the really bad things. I've never robbed a bank. Therefore, God may accept me. But Paul says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. That nothing that we do can be the basis of our acceptance before God. And so this, then, it it can strike us in in a strange way, right? Really? Nothing that I do? And one of the reasons that it's, it's so strange is that this is not the way any other religion outside of Christianity operates. That every other religion on some level says that the way that you're going to be accepted by God, the way you're going to be justified, counted righteous, is based on something that you do. And so Islam might say you, you have to follow the, the five pillars. Or Judaism or different strands of Judaism may say that you have to follow the laws and interpreted by the Talmudic tradition. But Christianity, it's very different. And the reason for that is it starts with the assumption that we have already failed. Uh, that that it, it begins with knowing that each one of us doesn't live up to God's standard. And God's standard is perfect, perpetual obedience, to perfectly love God and to, to perfectly love others. And then when we look at our lives, we know that we don't do all of those things perfectly. And so really when we look at the law or we look at rules or we look at ceremonies, that they, they can't actually make us righteous before God. All they do is really hold up the, this pattern beside us, and it's like the ruler beside us that shows how far short we actually are. So it's righteous and good, but it can't make us righteous, but it only exposes where we fail. And this is then why verse 16 is such incredibly good news to you and me. Look in your your Bible, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so what he's saying is that what we do is admit we can't do it, that our works aren't enough, our ceremonies aren't enough, and we trust in the one who actually did perfectly obey the law for us, who's Christ. And so as as we see that he perfectly fulfilled it, we trust in him, our sin is counted to him, on the cross, his righteousness is counted to us. And, of course, then we would think, all right, he, his righteousness is being applied to us. But the Bible shows that that doesn't mean then that we instantly become perfect in ourselves when we believe. That, and as much as that would be great to, to never have any struggles again with any sin or any hypocrisy, uh, but that's not what we see here that the Bible promises that the the moment that we believe in Jesus, we are counted righteous in his sight. And theologians talk about it as an alien righteousness, which has nothing to do with space or anything like that. 
But, but it really what they're getting at is it's an alien righteousness because it's not a, a righteousness that is something in us. It's not something we've done. It's not something where God looks inside of us and says, wow, there's a lot of good there. I'm going to accept this person as righteous in my sight. But it's alien, that it's outside of ourselves, that it is the, the righteousness of Christ that is counted to us as we trust in Christ. And so then we are received based not what, on, what we have done, but what Jesus has done for us. And I think that, that one of the ways that it's helpful to wrap our mind around this, because it's such a foreign concept, uh, again, can seem abstract. The, the Bible uses the image of clothing, of, of taking off a garment, putting on a garment. For instance, in the, the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, this is an Old Testament prophet, uh, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 4 of Zechariah, uh, listen to what Zechariah saw. Then... God showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And that's an image of, of where we are as well, that, that, that Satan comes to accuse us and he holds up the, actually the, the righteous standard of God. He holds up the law and says, here is how you have fallen short. Here's how you don't line up. Here's how you're not as good as you should be. And he's not doing that to push us to repentance and to Christ, but actually to crush, crush us and destroy us in, in guilt and in shame. But then look at verse 3 in, in Zechariah. He, it says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. So he has these garments that are dirty, symbol of sin. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. So God's saying, you know, you're in these, these filthy rags that is, is your sin, your, your inability to line up to God's standard. And God, God takes that away from you. And, and he, but it's not that then he leaves you just naked, that he then takes this pure garment and he clothes you. And that, that garment is the righteousness of Christ. And so what we do so often when we try to be justified by works of the law is we take this, this dirty garment that we have and we, just be, we, we scrub it and we scrub it and we try dyeing it and we pr maybe take it and dip it in lye. We do all kinds of things to try to remove the dirt in it. And the more that we try to do that, the more we're just exposing how dirty it actually is. And so really, all world religions are this attempt to scrub out the dirt and the mud that is in the garment, but it, it doesn't work. But yet Christ, in his perfect life, takes that, that dirty garment, he, he nails it to the cross, and he buries it in the tomb, and he gives you this pure, beautiful garment of his own righteousness. And so then when we come before God, when we approach his holiness, we don't come just clothed in the things that we've done, but we cl come clothed, and what he has done, we are justified, we are accepted completely and utterly through him. And I really imagine then that there are some of you here who, who feel the weight of that. I mean, we, we saw a moment ago Zechariah talking about the high priest standing and Satan accusing him. And so maybe you have just been weighed down by the, the, the accusations saying, here are all the ways that you fail, and you try, and you try, and you try, but you know that you're just unable to, to live up to everything that God requires of you. And this is then where, where justification by faith alone is the best news 
forever. That God takes our guilt and shame, gives us his righteousness. And so then when we approach before God, we're not then saying, oh, here are, here are the good things that I've done. Here are my best actions. But we're saying, I haven't perfectly loved you. I haven't perfectly served you. But I come here not pleading my own self, pleading my own actions, but pleading the work, the completed work of Jesus Christ alone. And this is one reason that I, I love the song, In Christ Alone. And we sing that song a lot of times here in our services. And one of the lines says, No guilt in life, nor fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. And that's what justification offers. It offers no guilt in life, because you know that you have been pardoned, that you've been forgiven, that you're clothed in righteousness. But then also no fear in death, because you're, you're not wondering, have I done enough? But you know with absolute certainty that Jesus has done enough, that his sacrifice is sufficient. So remember we said, what is Christianity about? Well, as we see, it's about justification by faith alone. But it is also about union with Christ alone. And that's what we see here as well. Because often when I explain the doctrine of justification to, to people, I, I get this, the same objection. And I bet you some of you were even thinking about the objection as I was explaining it. You say, all right, so all I need to do to be accepted in the sight of God is to believe in Jesus, and then my sin is counted to him, his righteousness is counted to me, I'm accepted. So with that kind of thing, why can't I just keep doing whatever I want? If my good deeds aren't going to contribute to getting into heaven, then why not just believe in Jesus and keep having an affair? Why not believe in Jesus and go, go murder somebody, right, in the most extreme form? Why is it that, that that's not the kind of attitude that we can have? And I really, I love it when people ask that question because it really shows that they're beginning to understand what justification by faith alone actually means and the implications of it. Because Paul, when he explains justification, he almost always anticipates that very objection, and he does the exact same thing here in our passage. Look at verse 17. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And so you can see that's just another way of stating that the objection that I was saying. Is Jesus an enabler? Is Jesus enabling sin when he justifies sinners freely by only when they believe in him? And, and the way that he puts it here, is Christ a servant of sin? Is he just serving, letting people continue in behaviors? And, of course, he says categorically, no, certainly not. And then look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's saying, if I try to rebuild the law as the means that I'm going to be accepted by God, then it's not going to make me more righteous in the sight of God. It's just going to prove that I am a transgressor. But then in verse 19, he hits the real meat of his argument here of saying that no, Christ is not a servant of sin. Look there, verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is saying, if you think that justification by faith alone is going to just open Pandora's box to, to sin and that you can live however you want, then what you're missing is the reality of what it means to be united to Christ. And he shows here what it means to be united to Christ, both in Christ's death and in his life. So, so look at the union with Christ in his death. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. And it almost sounds like Jesus was carrying Paul to the cross, that, that Jesus had Paul on his back. Or even I remember one of my, sim- uh, well, he wasn't my professor, I guess. He was a visiting professor, um, said that this passage makes it almost sound like Paul had Jesus Christ, sorry, that Jesus Christ had Paul on his mind as he was going to the cross. And so what does this mean that I have been crucified with with Christ? Well, it it doesn't mean that that Paul was literally there, that, that he was literally nailed to the cross. But he was literally united to Christ by faith. That, that his sin is literally counted to Jesus. That, his, that the, the righteousness of Christ is literally counted to him. And so he is, in a real sense, crucified with Christ. And so it's not him who's alive, but Christ who lives in him. And so, so Christianity, it begins with the, this radical call it begins with this call to die, that, that life in Christ, it begins with death, that we die to sin, we die to who we were, we, we die to our old self, and that everything might live and be centered on Christ. And as, you know, as I was thinking about this week, it, it made me think of even when my wife Grace and I had our, our daughter, uh, before that, we could spend our time the way that we wanted. We could go to sleep when we wanted, wake up when we wanted, but then suddenly everything changes, that in a, in a sense we, we had to, to die to ourselves to live for somebody else. And that's just a, a faint analogy of what Paul means when he says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That when we enter into this relationship with Jesus, it changes everything that our identity is no longer rooted in the bad things we've done, but our identity is rooted in Jesus and what he has done for us, that we know that our life is hidden with him, that we have been crucified with him, that our sin was, was nailed on the cross and that we have life. And so he then reorients everything. He reorients the way we think about money, the way we think about time, the what, how we think about being a good husband or a good wife or a good spouse or a good child or a good coworker. And it all comes down to this idea of being united to Christ. Because when we're tempted to, to sin or to do something that we know isn't pleasing to God, our thought isn't, oh good, I'm, I'm justified by faith. But it's, no, I'm united to Christ. This is not who I am, that I have died to this. I have been raised with him. And so why would I entertain something in my life that Jesus died on the cross to bear? Why would I let something in the door that is an affront to the one who loved me enough to live and to die 
for me. And this is actually, I, I wasn't even originally thinking this um, until just when we were singing it that I thought, that this relates to the sermon so much. When I survey the wondrous cross, we, we just sang it. He says, love so amazing, so divine, uh, demands my soul, my life, my all. That it's this, this love of God that's demanding our soul, our life, our all. And that's why Paul says that I'm living it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In, first, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that he has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised that we live in union with Christ by faith. And so now, just as we conclude, we've seen that Christianity is about justification by faith alone, about union with Christ alone, but then it is also about righteousness by grace alone. And this is where, where Paul ends in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And you'll remember that, that grace is this unmerited favor. It's getting something from God that we don't deserve. And so what, what Paul's saying is that if I were to go back and try to earn God's favor through my deeds, through the works of the law, that I would nullify the grace of God. And it's because then when I, when I come before God, I would be saying, look at me, look at the things that I've done. And then he shows us why that kind of logic doesn't work. He says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness were through education, Christ would have founded a school. If righteousness were through social reform, Christ would have become a community organizer or some kind of revolutionary. Or if righteousness were through just simply being a good person, he would have written a self-help book or or just focused on, on teaching and, again, had some sort of school of morality. But what did Jesus do? Where did his ministry culminate? It culminated in the cross. And that is such a scandal for any of us who are tempted to earn our salvation through the things that we've done. Because if we can just do some good deeds and get into heaven, why did Jesus die? Why did he need to die? He didn't die because he was sinful. He didn't die because he was tricked. He didn't die because he was weak. He died because that is the way that we can be justified, that we can be brought into a relationship. And so that is the, the good news. That is what Christianity is about, as we trust in him and experience the life that is only found in him. And this is also what we see here in, uh, in the Lord's Supper. We see what, what Christianity is all about we see that it is justification by faith, not works, because his body was broken, his blood was shed in our place. Not our work, but, but his work. And we see also the, this union with Christ, that the Lord's Supper is such a beautiful picture of what it means to be united to Christ, where it's not something that's just abstract outside of us, but it's something that, that becomes part of who we are as we, as we eat and we drink. And then also we see this, this amazing grace that's beyond all that we can think 
or imagine. 